From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers saving music journalism from death by clip. Hi everyone, uh, this is Mickey Hellerback coming to you live from In Search of Sauce. I am really happy to be joined by Jashima Watara and Elliot Sang. Um, uh, would you guys like to introduce yourselves first and uh, tell the world what you got going on and then I'll, I'll, I'll finish this off. Sure, um, I'm the newest member of Central Sauce, which is really exciting, and I'm working on a piece about Chameleon Air and early 2000s hip hop. And I'm Elliot. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, I, uh, I'm a writer, a musician, and I uh, do YouTube stuff. And um, I, if you're seeing this past Thursday, the 15th, or 15th, then my latest thing will have been a video essay on the, the YouTube channel Baby Gang. That's B-B-Y-G-A-N-G. It's a response uh, about a video about K-pop stands. So if you have if you have any interest in K-pop stands and, and learning about that stuff, I do a bunch of coverage about that. You might want to take a look. Yeah, awesome. Um, and again, my name is Mickey Hellerback. Uh, I have in the past week released three Why We Like It intro pieces for Central Sauce. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorites is by pro era artist CJ Fly, uh-huh. as he kind of ventures into doing a more uh, dance hall song uh, versus doing his kind of east coast hip-hop style which i think is really cool so definitely check that article out as well as the other two um so yes we have three pieces today um the first which is from elliot that we're going to start with is called nobody is scrutinizing this how labels pay to get songs on the radio and the piece is written by elias i believe that's how it's pronounced Mm -hmm. elias late um, and then following that up, we have a piece from Joshima, which is entitled How Pop Smoke Shaped New York, New York's Drill Rap Scene Well Into the Afterlife. And that's by Kathy Iandoli. Um, and then my piece, which we will close out with, is entitled On Savage Mode 2, 21 Savage and Metro Boomin Look to the Past for Inspiration. And that is by Daniel DeHorty. I hope I am pronouncing that right as well. Um, Yeah, so uh, the three of us, none of us have done a podcast together yet, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm very excited to get get some new perspectives and, and talk to you guys. Um, firstly, we like to start off some of the podcasts with all of us kind of talking about what we've been listening to. So since Joshima started the other kind of run around, Elliot, do you want to start off by telling us what you're listening to? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I'm listening to a wild, uh, kind of strange mix of things as usual, but nothing so strange. Like I'm not really that artsy. Um, but, um, because I've been covering and like sort of researching a lot more about Korean music lately, I've been checking out a lot of Korean R and B and Korean hip hop music. Um, I'm especially really into, um, a lot of stuff from artists like Hayes and Dean. Uh, there's a song called lyricist by Hayes. That's H E I Z E. That's a really interesting R and B sort of bossa nova track. Uh, I'm also listening to some Dominican hip hop. There's this artist Chucky 73 or Chucky 73, uh, doing some really uh, really excellent work 
with Fetty031. A lot of numbers, a lot of names. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of going, uh, I'm, I'm trying to dig a bit more into Latin American hip hop um, and as well as the Korean hip hop and R&B scene as well as K-pop. Cool, man. Jashima, what have you been listening to? Um, I, too, am all over the map. So I've been listening to this Canadian duo called Cartel Madras, and you'll catch them on our Spotify playlist because I've probably spammed Tyler with them many times. Um, But they have a new track out called Stay Up All Night, which I'm quite enjoying. They've got a really, really interesting mix between this rap, hip-hop, R&B, but there's all these incredible South Indian nuances sprinkled in that I'm obsessed with. Something else I was listening to the other day was Grills by Paul Wall, because someone sent me a link to Paul Wall's Instagram, and I was like, damn, someone do like an Oprah-style episode on Where Are They Now? Because I want to (laughs) know what Paul Wall is doing. According to Paul Wall's Instagram, he's doing Metro PCS commercials, but I don't know. Hmm. I want to know what Paul Wall's up to. Um, Yeah, he released a a tape with, uh, uh, what's the guy who does, he does a lot of... uh, white guy from boston producer he does a lot of stuff with uh joey badass static selecta yeah, yeah. he re- i think in 2019 they it's it was actually pretty good there i forget the name of the song but there was one song that i actually really liked from it it was kind of those tapes can be kind of weird especially if an artist like hasn't put anything out in a while but it was just kind of this cool blend I, it went very under the radar but shout out to paul wall shout out to yeah, paul I wall mean- Paul Wall. <laughs> and then yeah. the other thing I'm listening to, I'm, I may butcher his name, but yeah, Levi's. But there's like this like French reggaeton coming out of different parts of Africa that I'm very, very, very obsessed with right now. Oh, that's sick. Huh. So Wild. sad. Yeah, dope. I, um, I've been listening to, you know, a lot of the new releases that come out. I, I tend to go through for sure. It's Savage Mode 2 I've been listening to and the new Bryson Tiller I've been listening to. Um, one song that I wanted to mention, though, that I got from doing submissions for our, our Submit Hub account that I did last week is a song called Southside Fade by Reggie, who is this very up-and-coming artist from Houston that's now based in L.A. Um, God, I'm trying to think of how to even describe it. Um, the music video is really cool too. It's very like down home Houston kind of raw footage shot on film. Um, but it's kind of like if not the sound, but the aesthetic of kind of Houston chopped and screwed got fused into Neo soul. That's like the only way I know how to describe it, but I keep playing that song Southside fade over and over and over again. I know he got interviewed by Donna C at DJ booth. Um, well before, even when I was just looking up stuff on him before I even heard him. And then this is kind of like the funny one that I've been doing, uh, is I forget even at this point why I started, but I just went through Luther Vandross's entire catalog just because I listened to him so much growing up. And I always kind of wanted to see if there were deeper cuts. And I must say just from doing that, I feel like he and is like maybe should be considered within top five like songwriter slash compositional artists of all time and be in conversations even with bigger people and i think maybe his music is underrated but there's this guy marcus miller who is his bassist for many many years who i also think should be more revered in the names like a stanley clark that people know as like kind of a legendary bass player as he did so much of the bass for luther vandross's catalog right yeah yeah, I'm noticing Twitter is picking up like 
a lot more Luther Vandross vibes lately. Like there's a lot of more, um, cause there was this conversation recently about like best vocalists of all time. And people were like talking about like male vocalists even being in the same conversation as like a Whitney Houston or something. Somebody was like, well, hold on. Don't, don't play with Luther now. Don't play with Luther. He was unbelievable. I really wish I was a part of that conversation now because I entirely missed it and I was listening to the whole the whole catalog, but correct. Yeah, well, it'll come back. It'll come back. 100. Right, exactly. We can have it again. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. But I would just like to say for the sake of the podcast, that is 100% confirmed opinion. Excellent. On here. Excellent. Strong way. Strong way to start. Yeah, I don't know how this transitions at all into our first piece, but fuck it. <laughs> Let's go. Um, Who needs a segue? Yeah, I'll, yeah. Right, exactly, Elliot. Let's, Elliot, if you're ready, uh, you want to hit us with the intro to your piece. Right, so this is, um, the thing about Rolling Stone, man, I don't know, there's a bunch of different uh, publications that do this where it's like, there's one headline that you'll see like on, a, on like the embed or in the URL, and then there's another yeah. headline that you see when you click in. So I don't even know how to, like, the, 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 the title as it appears on the article uh, itself is, Nobody is scrutinizing this. How labels get to pay to, how labels pay to get songs on the radio. I'm glad that, um, I'm glad that I was able to get that out clearly. Uh, this is by Elias Late, as um, Mickey mentioned before. And Elias has been doing a lot of work about the media, uh, the, the music industry as it relates to media, as it relates to charting, and especially radio. Just a lot of investigations into what's really going on. And Ro- the Rolling Stone have put out some really strong articles in this realm over the past year or so, where each time it's like, oh, well, I guess that payola thing is still, still a thing. Um, and this one is... It's no exception. It is incredibly strong. It centers around um, or centers on this ongoing chain of uh, texts or series of texts between um, a radio indie, an independent promoter uh, named um, Steve Zapp. Great name, first and foremost. Um, Hi guys, Ed's a Charlie here, so I just wanted to give a quick note before you guys continue. If you guys are wondering why there are two articles uh, submitted by Elliot, um, that was just a little bit of a uh, minor clerical error, I meant to give one and the other as a support, but it happened the other way around. Uh, but that's no worries for you guys, because obviously both links are there for you guys to consume. They are by the same author, um, which makes, uh, which actually adds to uh, adds to everything. And uh, in my humble opinion, this is probably one of the best conversations we have had on this show so far. So without further ado, just wanted to leave that quick note. Little clerical error, but it has nothing to do with you guys, nothing to do with you, listener. Uh, you have everything at your disposal. So with that said, I'll leave you to it and enjoy the conversation. So Elias Late has been covering this for a long time, and a lot of this has to do with the interactions between independent radio promoters um, or independent promoters, sometimes they're called indies, that basically bring songs to radio. They work as a sort of middleman between the labels um, to shop songs, you know, shopping as in the process in which when a new song comes out, labels will bring it to different radio stations and bring it to different marketing opportunities. Labels will shop these songs to radio stations and the way that they'll do it is by going through these indies. These indies have the connections, they have access to different promotions, 
And they basically constantly work through finagling conversations with different radio stations, different um, you know programmers talking about, okay, we need spins for this, we need spins for that. So in this particular article, um, this was a this featured interviews with people in the industry, including a music industry veteran named Luke. Um, and the independent promoter sort of conversation comes up because he's discussing how this independent promoter has built a new relationship. It's an anonymous promoter with a, a starter station, um, meaning a radio outlet that's willing to give a song a chance before it's a proven hit. And that is bad news for him because this promoter basically is charging over a thousand dollars to get any of the different work um uh through you know this independent promoter and so you know rolling stone has been covering through elias late numerous and numerous articles the ways in which pay-for-play transactions are mostly funneled through these independent promoters or these indies and these indies yeah, they basically run the radio industry. And this becomes incredibly problematic for a number of reasons. Now, a lot of people talk about radio stations in this way, um, wherein we conceive radio stations to kind of be a thing of the past, right? Uh, people now have streaming programs. People now have, um, you know, many different ways to listen to their music and curate it for themselves. Radio stations are sort of seen thusly as sort of a, something that people used to listen to music through in the past, right? And that nobody really listens to radio anymore, maybe sometimes in the car, maybe sometimes accidentally when you're in the store. But the general feeling, especially among young people, is that there's no need for the radio stations. And the radio stations aren't playing songs that they're actually interested in listening to. And these kinds of transactions being uncovered sort of confirms part of the reason why people are not tuning into radio stations. Um, the fact that labels essentially pay money in order to get songs on the radio means that a lot of times some of the top radio hits or the, the songs that reach top charting in the radio stations or reach top 40, top 20, whatever the chart list might be, are songs that are not otherwise being listened to or enjoyed by a larger amount of people and are just getting that radio push. This also means that certain types of artists and certain artists without the access to these things who might have buzzing songs, who might have a lot of uh, fans who might be able to provide something to these radio stations and, and, and break through to new listener um, bases are not getting those opportunities because they don't have the connections with the labels in mind or they don't have enough of a budget uh, allowed for them for that to be paid towards these radio stations. There's also some different conversations that are had about how these different uh, attempts by Elliot Spitzer years ago and in general from you know New York State legislation uh, um, and uh, just the general ways in which um, people have tried to sort of add restrictions to this, to stop this, because this is, this is payola. This is essentially illegal. However... There's so many ways for them to circumvent this in terms of plausible deniability. So the sort of follow up that we are looking that um, that I meant to send and then didn't, but uh, sort of ties into <laughs> this um, is another piece by Elias Late from October 5th. It's called "Pay for Play Was Banned from Radio, but Texts Reveal It May Still Be Thriving." And what Rolling Stone tapped into was over 2,500 text messages where an independent promoter 
by the name of Steve Zapp, who's been working in the industry since the 80s, is basically texting different radio stations, telling them what they need to play and what is in what is at stake, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm actually going to read some of these some of these texts um, out loud, so you guys can get a sense of the sort of egregiousness uh, that is at play here. The first the the first quote that we get in the first paragraph um, is from Mitch Mills, who's a senior vice president of radio promotion at Electra Records. He's texting Steve Zapp saying, "Stevie down, Stevie." Down 11 in panic. I just did a 2000 deal with you. I need panic backup. And panic is uh, in reference to panic at the disco. Uh, who's a band at the, at that label. Uh, some more stuff from this, from the, uh, the text that they've uncovered. The one that actually uh, closes the article is perhaps the most egregious. I'm just going to read Elias late's writing here is in full. So you get the entire, the entire, the entire vibe, let's say. Uh, in August 2019, a zap text to one station said, This week, kill Panic, as in Panic at the Disco, and Ed Sheeran, and put Sean, as in Sean Mendes, superpower for number one. Republic's sweating me already. So superpower means is this particular type of rotation that's like extra place. It's being pushed a lot by the stations. On the previous week's chart, Sheeran's I Don't Care was number one. Sean Mendes's If I Can't Have You was number three. Republic Records was promoting the single. And Panic at the Disco's Hey Look Ma, I Made It was number four. As the charts tracking week neared its end, the station told Zap that Mendes's single was set to play every half hour. But then Zap fired off another text. It is too, quote, it is too close and we haven't jumped Ed yet. After 8 p.m., can we do every 15 minutes? No one will even notice. No one listens to the radio unless in car. That week, Mendez leapfrogged Sheeran on the media-based chart and hit number one. So this is very, very crucial in basically reaching the top of this radio chart. And it also has significant impact on the actual charts. Well, the actual charts that we tend to care about in colloquial conversations. And those are the billboard charts. Billboard charts still factor in a great amount of the credits that put songs on the chart, that put songs over one another based on radio station plays and based on top 40, basically. And these top 40 songs are very often not songs that would otherwise be anywhere near these charts if they did not have this push from radio. So the fact is that a great amount of what goes into the Billboard charts is an industry that is heavily based on just people paying to get songs played. It's just labels paying to get these <laughs> to get this charting, as well as obviously the different things that can come with radio, um, you know, promotional opportunities and things like that. And so this entire thing, it went quite viral on Twitter because a lot of BTS stands who have not received a lot, who, whose favorite artist in BTS, uh, I'm, I'm among them, um, has not received much radio play throughout their entire career despite having very popular songs or songs that have reached a lot of streams and high amounts of purchases up until this past release that they had, which was their first release fully in English. Um, they did not have a song that was even close to the top 40 in radio plays. Their last song that was a title track um, on in February went number four on the billboard hot 100, but didn't reach past like a hundred plays on radio that entire week. And this is one of the biggest songs in the country. 
And so these things are also very much colored by the race and the eth the ethnic and cultural backgrounds and especially the languages of the artists. Despite the fact that so many of the artists that are incredibly popular globally and even in America right now speak different languages, speak Spanish, speak Korean, speak uh, different dialects from the African continent, they are not going to get played on top 40 stations because they have a strict bias against these types of artists. And additionally, we all know how the, the, the lines of genre are extremely colored by the ethnic background of the artist and that an artist like Tyler, the creator, and this is a bit of a separate conversation, but still reached one best rap, rap album last year, if you guys remember, for Igor, which was very much not a rap album. Yeah. And this is just one of a number of examples in which artists, who are the biggest artists in the world right now? They're hip hop artists, right? Drake, Travis Scott. Kendrick Lamar, uh, even 21 Savage, right? And these artists have albums that are streaming out the wazoo, if you will. But they're not going to get played on top 40 stations. They're not going to get these pushes from the label. And they're not going to be treated with this in the same category as a random song by Diplo that like five people have listened to. And this is very much something that is based in things that are completely out of the artist's control. And so I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts when you see this? Does this, this confirm or or raise suspicions that for you guys? Are there were there any particular <laughs> takeaways that you guys had when you read this? Yeah, I think for me it it's not surprising in the least. I think as an artist manager who manages someone that happens to be South Asian, sings in English, sings in Hindi. Um, you see this all the time and, and the mentality and I don't know what it's like in Southeast Asia or in East Asia, but in South Asia and India, for sure, everything is who you know and how much you're willing to pay for it. Right. So you call somebody and you're like, oh, I want to be on this publication. I want to be on this channel. And all of those things happen for X amount of dollars. Right. There's no integrity in those industries, but also because their listenership doesn't rely on those things. So. Right it doesn't need the same level of integrity as much as I wish it had it. it, as much as I wish it had it. But I do think something about radio that is true in my experience in America is that radio might be one of the places where racial profiling exists in the most overt sense. Mm -hmm. Because when I think about the last 15 years of listening to radio and the times I recall seeing a BIPOC artist featured regularly was tipsy. Or was, what's the Kevin Little song, Turn Me On, right? Like, I can tell you the five, six different times someone that was out of this norm of strategic acceptedness was played on the radio regularly. And, and you start to think to yourself, well, 88 Rising and BTS have done what every type of music genre niche collective hope to do, which is reach their users in such a direct, streamlined, unpenetrable manner that they don't have to rely on radio. But it's still a very clear industry directive to see them not there, right? right? So you, you know what's happening because how is it possible that on every other streaming platform known to man, they're killing it <laughs> and they're selling out shows, but we're streaming artists that can't sell a $20 ticket at a coffee shop on mainstream radio channels in America. Wow, Joshua, you just made me kind of have like a mini brain explosion. Uh, <laughs> but you took this conversation in a, a place that I uh, didn't even 
expect it to go necessarily, which I don't know if you guys have heard Louder Than a Riot, the podcast that just started on NPR, but it basically talks about like, uh, you know, media professionals, especially for black artists pushing kind of more sexually driven lyrics and content, which then eventually leads to like this entire thing about the prison industrial yeah. complex, which is a whole, uh, that's like a whole other wormhole to go down. But you made my brain explode because I think about, it made me think about literally the first rap song that I remember hearing that made me love rap which was played on the radio for sure and was the clean version, which is another version of like a tipsy and then kind of makes my brain go down the, the wormhole of all of these thoughts, which was uh, <laughs> Shake Your Ass, which was played on the radio as Shake It Fast by <sighs> Mystical. Um, <laughs> so there's a reason potentially deeper down why that song was pushed, which is interesting. Um, and I think the the one thing that we haven't talked yet, which goes more into the article that me and Joshima read, Elliot, which is about the, the just the necessity for radio to make money. Yeah. That that's like just a huge reason why this has to happen in the first place. Like that, that it, it, I mean, you kind of spoke on it at the top, but that's such a driving thing. And then, I mean, for me, the kind of funny thing about it, though, is that I kind of these independent um, guys or girls who are the promoters who are in playing the middlemen who kind of came up on the reality that it's a dying industry. I'm honestly not mad at them and I can't even knock the hustle. Yeah, yeah I mean, they're they're almost <laughs> comically blatant about how they're just like, I mean, nobody listens to radio, dude. Like we need to do business. This yeah. is a business transaction. But do you, oh, do you yeah. both think that there is a little bit of truth to that? Because I'll say this, right? As journalists, I for sure 10 out of 10 can tell you who in India will take a check from you real quick and people here that I've interacted with. But I do sure. also think that the more and more saturated media becomes where there used to be like a coveted 10 podcasts or radio stations you wanted to be on. Now there's 400. Right. And so your, your, your user base is super divided. And who's sponsoring those people? Like for us to get paid as writers with other outlets, where do they have to sell their ad space or get their revenue generation from like eight degrees of separation? So to some degree, I'm not saying I think it's right, but I get mm. that. I, how long can people ride the integrity train? Oh, totally. That's exactly what I'm saying is like I can't even. Well, it's that kind of weird separation between like. <laughs> what is morally correct and like that we live in a capitalist society and at the end of the day like you have to stay afloat yeah so it's like it's that weird line of like what can i actually be morally upset about when i know the fact that if maybe they didn't that's in the article that we read they were like this is like in a, a million dollar industry basically that the radio stations even are getting a payout from because of the independent um promoters so it's like if you think about radio, you didn't have to think about it for a second. You just know that they're on the downslide, especially because of like streaming services and the, the implementation of like Spotify playlisting, which is really like where artists are even focusing most of their energy, especially independent artists to get their songs. on. Yeah. Um, um, going back to capitalism and, and, and going to your point, because um, everything goes back to yeah. capitalism, of course. Um, because everything you're saying is making a lot of sense. And in terms of the ways in which radio survives, even just in terms of programming, right? What would be a reason that you or I, or, you know, any generic person off the street, whatever, whoever they might be would want to listen to the radio instead of their own playlists or anything on Spotify, anything on a streaming platform, anything on YouTube. One of the biggest things is that these radio stations host these very 
you know, palpable sweepstakes, these giveaways. They do, oh, first five callers within the, you know, after 655 will get a chance to win tickets to this Sean Mendes concert, right? Uh, we'll get a chance to win some merchandise from, you know, this, this pop artist, that pop artist. And these things are quite valuable to fans still and just quite valuable in general because people like free stuff. And people especially, if you're talking about a concert, are you kidding me? Like, that is a, an amazing experience. So it's not even about music for a lot of people. It's about, well, I have to tune in and I have to get these giveaways, right? I want to see, I want to listen to this It's about contesting. Yeah. And yeah. the thing, but I think that culture is going away, don't you, Elliot? I think t- because, like, without events, what do you? If I'm an event producer and I can't throw a concert, <laughs> even pre-COVID, right? Like the types of artists that were even getting stadiums sold out or venues sold out were so slim to none. So, I'm not going to pay a radio presenter to promote my event that I know isn't going to sell out, or I can't <laughs> afford how much they're charging me. And now with COVID, right. it's like. What are you going to where people might be driving more than they've driven previously in certain places, but there's no concert. Right. Oh, yeah. And then but then you tapped into the merch sales, too. Right. But that's also like I feel like the problem with that is being a radio being a promotional tool is like there's no way that you're going to promote your merch sales more on radio than you would on just your Twitter. Like there's no like why why would you go to the the 88 rising like direct to consumer? Why would you go there when you know that they won't give you a fair play? B may only have a segment of your target demographic and then C are going to charge you. Yeah. You'd rather figure out your own ad stream or boosting posts or influencer partnerships that make more sense for you to get someone that's more likely to be a turnover listener. Right. Right. So in that sense, again, at the end of the day, like, of course, radio has to do this. Of course. What, especially in a pandemic, like what the hell else? I don't know though. I want to do a deep cut because I'm into those. So what is your take (laughs) on if you had to describe who you think the general radio consumer in America is describe to me what we think their demographic is <laughs> like who's listening yeah. to 101.5 or whatever it is right you know what's funny when you th- the funny thing is my immediate answer to that is not people who would listen to the music that like they're listening to like it's like white midwestern oh, yeah. people who like just they're like right. oh i go in my truck and pop on the radio but they're not listening to the new sean mendez single they're listening to like classic rock yeah. no but i think even if they are right there's like 10 stations a certain type of person on their commute listens to them even if that's where you get your music but then i would argue that there's all of us that like i don't know about y'all but growing up it was like oh i'm cool i listen to shit i found on karma loop or in some forum i don't listen <laughs> to stuff on the radio you know oh, like you know. listening to chance the rapper before it was cool to listen to chance the rapper all the rap blogs rap radar not right to dope boys every day yeah and so that was a thing right so there's that culture of music lover that's not listening to the radio then there's like the dance let your hair down type of pop music that's always playing on the radio and then there's everything else so over time people start podcasting they start doing all of their news and politics on the radio a lot more than they did before so i get it for radios i still don't think it's right oh yeah i mean the thing is everything that they that they can offer to try to make money is in part based in something that they can get from these labels. The power that these major labels have over radio industries is 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 quite palpable. And because of that, 
why would they play something that is not connected to a major label that's not being shot by a major label that's not going to get them an exclusive interview exclusive content uh, uh an exclusive drop merch whatever the case might be or that you know a couple thousand dollars whatever it is if if there's something else that can get them that and then what that's you know there's just no way for that that through radio, people can find that kind of, um, you know, come up if they don't already have that type of specific connection in the industry. And in order for them to have that specific connection in the industry, we all know that the music industry and the way that rep- record labels operate can be very exploitative and very harmful overall to a, a musician's career. And that's where the, the thing that really makes it so funny is that even though radio is seems so distant and so like not relevant to us um first of all like you said like that middle-aged midwestern white dude that's a lot of people in this country right but a set but uh, you know in addition to that it's the fact that this is still a like connected to charting and connected to everything like relevant toward like connected to all these different metrics that we have in terms of indicating who's big in the industry right now that's what makes it even just more laughable because it's like we all know that this 21 Savage, that hip-hop artists are doing the biggest numbers on streaming. They are the talk of everything. They are the most influential artists in every realm. And yet... Y'all, it's like our government. You get the popular vote and it still doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, right? And that's the truth. Artists are being awarded by metrics that are not reflective of their audience base and like if you're not being judged on your audience base then what the fuck do you do as a musician i don't know well right but i always wonder so here's the thing that i come back to at the end of the day is like as far as what is the reward right for all of the shit when it comes to the artists is like okay but is that actually does that really matter? Like the kind of whatever the fake public accolade is, or like, is any of this translating into money in the bank account? And in the, the piece that we read, Elliot, it's like the answer is generally no. Right. I mean, it doesn't, this, this stuff isn't for the benefit of the artists. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, I think it's, I think, it, but in the grand scheme of things, right, when you read an artist's EPK or you see what artists are part of a vetted directory for a music supervisor for Sync, which does make them real money, right. it's often x award winning billboard charting xyz so even if it doesn't have a monetary benefit i believe that it still tells society and listeners that these entities are what make you credible right so if i'm a journalist i want to have written for xyz outlets not because it paid me but because i get to then say that i'm an complex forbes central sauce journalist right Right. so totally that well maybe that feels weird i also Oh, totally. I also think that... Yeah, go ahead. Not to cut you off, but I also think that at the end of the day, if it makes the label money, that is what the artist has to keep in in the front of their mind because so many artists just don't have a lot of resources they can go to outside of this label that they've signed to. And so when you sign to a label, you are now, you know, you're a player on a, on a basketball team. You know, your objective is to make the team win. And if that means that you're not going to win and you're not going to get the payout at the end of the day, 
that's what has to happen because if you don't, then you'll obviously probably get cut. You'll get yourself in a bad situation career-wise and get yourself released. And a lot of artists, I don't know if it's, you know, some people might argue that it's, you know, not a lack of independence, a lack of education, or it's structural issues. There's many things that go into it. But at the end of the day, artists still want to sign to labels. They still want to be part of these labels generally. Um, and that's changing, but it's not changing overnight. And in the meantime, there's all these different ways that these labels can still make themselves look a lot more beneficial than they actually are to artists. 100%. And I, and I know we probably need to move on to other right, pieces, right, right, right. but I will say this about labels that most people don't understand is it's much like franchises in America that are run by a very specific type of person, right? So if you have 50 plus years of relationships at labels to make everything turnkey, you can still offer so much more to an artist than they can get independently. And if you're right now at the intersection of tides changing and things becoming more inclusive, labels will always have more capital to invest in you and a better learning curve ability than being independently scrappy, especially in a marketplace where things like Triller and TikTok are happening with different conglomerates running music sync, right? right. So, I mean, hate a label, love a label. Sometimes you might need a label. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bar. That's a good that's a good bar to end on, I think, specifically because we're going into your piece, Joshua. So um yeah, that that was tight. We need to chop that up and, and use it as a sample. <laughs> Um, But yeah, go go ahead into your piece. I want royalties for my example. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so my piece is about how pop smoke shaped New York's drill rap scene well into the afterlife. And it's by Kathy Iandoli, who wrote it for Grammy.com. And I probably have the biggest journalistic crush on Kathy Iandoli. Um, A, she's a badass hip-hop journalist and she's been around for a minute but she's also an author of a book called god save the queens which is one of my favorite things on my bookshelf and it's about women in hip-hop but on the note of this piece one of my favorite things about this piece is that for a second i forget how young pop smoke was Mm -hmm. and when she says he was born in 1999 you read that back a couple times and you're like i'm older than pop smoke And you start to look at life and you think back to yourself and you're like, not that I don't think I've made an impact, but this person's dedication to a specific type of art had revolutionized a niche movement that grew past him and with him. And now that he's gone, that genre is exploding. And I think that that was the biggest takeaway for me from this piece. And I really enjoyed how she kind of described both his aesthetic, but the the art of drill itself oh definitely um well i can definitely immediate the the mo the biggest thing that i highlighted while reading this um specifically where you're talking about like his aesthetic was the bar that she had which she called his music hymns that hugged the streets which i thought was such a like proper use of describing <laughs> pop smokes music and really put it together in a way that i haven't heard anyone else describe it um, and why that um, connects so, so much with me is, so I've lived in Brooklyn the last five years until the pandemic happened. And then I bounced for a little bit, shouts Rona. But 
the I've lived on Flatbush Avenue, which if people know, who know Brooklyn is one of the busiest streets uh, in Brooklyn. And I always um, kind of took to heart of what the hottest so- songs or who the hottest artist was in New York based on my window was literally at the street. So I can also sleep through anything now. But I was what what music I would hear consistently coming out of car speakers. And I can say um, besides one other part, the, there's only one other artist in the entirety of the five years I lived in Brooklyn that for an extended period of time, I noticed so wholeheartedly was coming out of everyone's car. And that was funny enough, Fetty Wap when he had like four songs all at one time. But since Fetty Wap, Pop Smoke had the most intense as she was saying, hugging of the streets with his sound, of any sound that came out in the entirety of my living in Brooklyn experience. So I think that that, and you know, I mean, you know, if if Brooklyn specifically worships anything, it's when an artist is like on their rise. And it's kind of, I don't even know if it's totally explainable, but that's why it felt like, like him is such a religious term, right? And he's like, literally, you're hearing him on the street and that kind of like bump out of a car speakers with the windows down is the most like it feels like the most honest and and centered expression of a hymnal in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, so I I just yeah I I, I don't know I'm spo- speaking about one phrase for so long, but that that really like jumped off the page to me as as um, and it's you know it's five words, but it really just sums up the piece as a whole. I thought. and something about the verb hug too like yeah yeah this you know i i went to school in brooklyn as well um i've been many of my friends are from brooklyn um from crown heights uh, from from you know some people from williamsburg which is just a whole different thing but like (laughs) flatbush you know and it's it's this comfort that people take when not only it's one of their own in pop smoke being you know from canarsie but like being so clearly and so proudly their own there's this gap we've all people have been talking about it for a long time and uh, you know all three of us have spent a lot of time in new york by now so we are very familiar with these kinds of conversations but you know there's just been this ongoing thing for a while now of like oh new york rap fell off oh new york doesn't have a sound anymore new york doesn't have a style new york doesn't have a leader uh, in in the hip hop scene and i can't describe anybody coming as close to it as pop smoke did because yeah. pop smoke offered a number of different things that ticked boxes that you didn't even know needed to be ticked until pop smoke came around his sound was futuristic. It was current because it had these influences from England and these influences from Chicago, as influ- as said in the article. But it was new because when you hear a New York rapper rap over, it's just different. His, you know, the things that he was talking about, from whether it was street stuff, the language that he was using, the slang, the time, the terms that he would use that were not exactly politically correct sometimes. This is the sh- this is the stuff that you would hear going to the corner store, like hanging out with people in Brooklyn. Yeah, you're at the bodega, and that's what you're hearing on the street. That's exactly he talked exactly like people from here talk, and he had yeah. this voice, of course, that everybody always talks about with Pop Smoke. His his voice will just go down forever. You know, it's not just about having a deep voice; it's having a voice that's so like so distinct and so 
you know, colorful while still being deep and still being like gruff and, and being, you know, you know, you know, street influence because of what, how he came up. But like, it was this thing that you would just see happen so quickly overnight. You, I would be at a party and people would be like, Hey, play that pop smoke song. I was like, who's pop smoke. And immediately <laughs> it was like, Oh, I, I, well, this is, this is the most powerful thing now because when you, when, when New York finds something that they can identify with, oftentimes you represent that hard exactly like it's even if it's things that you you know the thing about pop smoke is that it wasn't always pretty like the things that he delivered wasn't always pretty it wasn't perfect it wasn't you know artsy it wasn't this thing it could have been it was all three all of those things at, at different points if you think about it but it didn't have to be that because at the end of the day it was it was very natural and real for who he was and that included the flaws in his personality or it included the, the the different ways that he came up that people might not understand or not, might not vibe yeah. with and that i think is, that ride or die mentality is very new york yeah. you know that sort of when you find someone you you identify so strongly but the word hug was big because yesterday i did a live with someone and they asked me why hip-hop was the genre i chose to single out in my bio and why it was so important to me and i kept I, I was on this tangent about how it taught me respect. And, and I realized after reading this piece and hearing us talk about the verb hug, it's actually that it embraces you, right? Yeah. People feel embraced by hip hop, <laughs> especially when it's geographically regional. When she, she says it, Kathy says, the final ingredient was that Brooklyn swagger, the same swagger that made Notorious B.I.G. and Jay-Z household names the same swagger that shouted hunger and opulence with every line split the same swagger that commanded being decked in designer wardrobe on project street corners it was pop smoke's birthright to embody all of that and more and he was determined to make that combination of the new voice of the streets and that for me was big because it's true The local nature of, of, of hip hop is really part of what makes it so powerful. The localities, you know, we're, we're going to talk about Tony One Savage in a bit. You know, his his way of representing Atlanta, the ways in which West Coast artists represent the West Coast, and then globally, the ways in which you know artists from England, artists from France, artists from uh, Puerto Rico have such a dis not not only just say like I'm from Puerto Rico, woo, but like will speak in their accent. Will say the things that only they and other Puerto Ricans will say. Whether it's like a location, it's a slang term. They'll speak to something culturally and in the sound of the music that is just like I don't care if you don't get it because where I'm from, the people that care about this care about what I'm about to say. Like, and that's what matters to me. And that is more infectious than anything. Right. I mean the 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 artists also that that took over kind of new york or like had us tried to put their stamp on as being kind of the artists of new york closest to pop smoke is probably a asap rocky but why people were so hungry for pop smoke too is kind of that last sentence that joshua said which was the as the quote which is that he was of the streets like there's a very specific dichotomy of that that like really is inherent within him first and foremost that dude is from canarsie which is like one of the few like untouched by not untouched but like least less touched by gentrification it was like and that's why people got so hyped about him not just because his voice sounded like 50 cent but 50 cent was from jamaica queens it was like that same kind of energy where the core of new york music as a whole had not really sounded like that like asap rocky kind of represented someone who was like coming up in gentrified harlem but it was also spending a lot of his time in soho and there was something about like 
and, you know, being a part of like the fashion design world. And Pop Smoke was like, yeah, I'm going to rock the Dior, but I'm right on the corner in Canarsie. And it's like, there's something that is just inherently true about that. And that, again, I mean, we're going to, you know, I guess we've made this section all about the hug of it. But it's like he's really hold, hugging and holding on to what um, feels like the what people would call the real New York at his And I will, I will also say, like, his, he was Jamaican and Panamanian. This is another thing that was, I mean, I, you can argue it's entirely almost new in terms of, like, the representation. Because, like, even as big as Biggie and Jay-Z and all these different artists from New York City were... I don't think there's a lot of hip hop artists that would rep the West Indies in the same way, right? That Pop Smoke did. There was the sense that when you talk to your to people who are Caribbean people from Brooklyn, it was just like, well, that's just them. Like even if it wasn't them, it was them. It was like they were hearing something that was that was cultural or religious for them in a sense cuz it's like, yeah. And I think that is huge for the West Indian community, right? Oftentimes in music, especially in entertainment, you overtly saw a Black American or Black narrative and then a Latin American narrative as that started being introduced as a parallel. But there's been this community of West Indians, especially in Brooklyn and Queens, that have been here for so, so, so long and have consumed those cultures and been a part of them. But no one ever overtly recognizes that part of their identity, which is big but i do want to ask this question and then i think we can segue to savage but she said kathy says artists like fivia foreign and busy banks are carrying Uh that torch slowly moving up the ranks within hip-hop do you guys feel like that's Uh, true do you feel like they are carrying his torch i want the tea i want your opinion (laughs) all right pass me the yeah yeah yeah, you got it uh um I think that it is an unfair expectation to lay on any artist would be my answer to that. Uh, I think particularly because it's so fresh and also based on what Fabio and I don't, I honestly have never heard of the other artists, unfortunately, but (laughs) the, as, and I know a decent amount of Brooklyn drill guys and I follow this stuff, but I, I think they were already establishing themselves within the time of pop smoke and they were under under his influence already so there's no way to be like now that he's gone i am gonna be on the same level so i think it's just an unfair thing to even compare or nor should they have to live up to that yeah no i i mean i definitely pulled out part of that sentence i don't think she's saying that they're comparing, right. but more so just that they're carrying the torch because he left a blueprint and everyone's rising through the ranks. So I was more so asking if you guys felt like those two artists are in the same or can one day be in the same league as what we now hold Pop Smoke to. Because I do think something mm-hmm. that no one says out loud is we revere people when they die. Right. Right. Oh, like true. we yeah. we put people on a pedestal when they die. Right. And that's something no one wants to say out loud, but it's sure shit true. Right. Oh, yeah, so totally. if, if, if he were alive, you'd be like, damn, I mean, this young kid just started. Right. Yo, you know, what's funny, though, as comparatively to like so many. I mean, this is the case for other artists, too. But like, yo, I think I genuinely think just I mean, I was in Brooklyn while the whole thing was happening. So I guess I have a different perspective rather than being outside. But I didn't see a difference in like he was more revered, yeah. especially from that end after he passed. Yeah. Like I felt like Pop Smoke was the biggest artist. They, and, and she spells it out. He was the biggest artist in New York before he passed away. 
There was not, there was not this, maybe in the wider project of people like kind of fronting, like they knew what it was on the outside, but in Brooklyn, like it was the same energy when he was alive. Like people were in New York for sure. I think New York, she says it, right? You're saying it. I think in New York, a hundred percent, it was pop smoke when pop smoke was alive. But I think for everyone else, it, 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 and I could just be being a New Yorker that's like, okay, now it feels like everyone's talking about right. it. Right. I think, but, um, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think the the, 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 the crazy part of it all is it, the, it, the person who's carrying the torch for Pop Smoke's legacy right now, musically, is still Pop Smoke because his music is still playing everywhere. It doesn't feel like he's gone anywhere. I think that's the craziest part. Like, it, it feels like... There's these artists that are coming up from Brooklyn in the drill scene that, is, you know, they're really, really talented. And I do think there's a degree to which, yeah, as you as you asked, like there, there's a degree to which this blueprint was set because this sound was so distinct and the style was so distinct that it opened up a lot of people's eyes and allow for a lot of people to find their way within that. Obviously, nobody's going to be able to copy it, but we'll find some sort of way to, to build their own careers um, based off of this energy. But Pop Smoke... And I don't know how much more posthumous material he has beyond this, but this past album has been doing incredibly well. And it's been only further, and a lot of it isn't even drill sound. It's just him venturing into these different styles, even him doing the 50 Cent tribute. It's amazing because it doesn't feel, man, that's, that was amazing. Um, is there's, there's something about it that is very eerie because when a lot of other artists die, it almost feels like there's this shockwave that's sent out. And with Pop Smoke, it was like a shockwave that was sent out, but it doesn't feel like anything has truly changed in terms of people's consumption of his art. I feel like when I listen to people on the street playing his music and stuff and still talking about him, it's almost as if like like he didn't die because it's like, this is what I would have been playing anyway. I'm just, this is this is the music. This is me. Damn, I want to. You just triggered a, the thought that I wanted to bring up before. So I, this article also, and then I'll transition, I guess, into Twenty One Savage, so we don't go too long. But <laughs> reading this article made me directly, for the first time, compare "Shoot for the Stars" to um, "Get Rich or Die Trying," and I realized not not that they're exact, but they're both pretty long albums, and I think there's actually exact parallels in vibe. Right. Like, I think Dior is his in the club, right. 100%. Yeah. And it's still on the album. But then also, as much as he did the Many Men tribute, I think 42 Bulldog is really like the Many Men of this right. album. Do you right. know what I'm saying? It's like that raw gutter street sound that like connects that and like kind of checks that box. That song, Mood Swings, is his 21 questions. It like blew up and people didn't even think he could have a song like that that blew up. And now it's having this like, and she mentions it in the article, this kind of, um, this entire kind of movement on TikTok that's really like blowing it up to this whole whole other level. And then the last one, oh, is that the Woo song? Oh. That feels so. I I didn't notice it when it first came out, but I thought about it. That was actually the first one I thought of. Feels so much like that PIMP remix with yeah. Snoop too. Yeah, man. That's so. And those true. were like. T- those to me, and I didn't realize this going in, and like hopefully no one jacks my idea maybe for an article in the future, right. but I wanted to say it because we were talking about it, but I was like, I, it just, I don't know, just the way that she was talking about that stuff really made me think, when, especially I think when she said the mood swings, I was like, God, that's so much like 21 questions because that is really the song that ended up sticking out. But it, 
Yeah, it's I I doubt he did it intentionally, but the kind of that has always been kind of crazy. Just the level of parallel between Pop Smoke and Fifty Cent that I think is really wild. Right. Yeah. That came out of his him making that album. Right. R.I.P. Yeah. Pop Smoke. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I think yeah the the hands down best part of this article was the way that Kathy described him and his style and his aesthetic, because I think people don't give that kind of journalistic grace or attention to hip hop. And that's what's been very unique about her career because she's able to say things like using words like him and hug and birthright. Mm. And I think artists in hip hop are never allotted that kind of respect or attention. Right. Yo, dope. That's now that's actually so much better of a transition into the 21. Yeah. <laughs> um, yo, that's dope. Um, Yeah, so my piece that I I brought is again called On Savage Mode 2, 21 Savage and Metro Boomin' Look to the Past for Inspiration by Daniel DeHorty. So it's a, um, it's a review. Um, I read about, there's by like major kind of music reviewer writers, there has been like four to five that I've read personally. Um, and to me, I, I don't know if y'all have read the other ones that have come out. Um, and I won't name names cause I'm about to say this, but this was hands down my favorite of all of them because of the angle that it took. And what is crazy about that is the kid who wrote this is 17, oh. which wow. I found out that shit is bonkers to me. So I found that out because, and I believe Joshua, correct me if I'm wrong, either you or Brandon, I think, brought a piece by Thomas Hobbs to the last one that you, yeah, that was Brandon. That was Brandon. That was Brandon. Got you. So Thomas Hobbs on his Instagram page, uh, not Instagram, Twitter page, posted this article and said he was kind of like a protege to him. And I was like, oh, that's, that's dope. Cool. I'm going to take a look at this. And I was amazed. I was really like, I read this shit and I was like, dude, I don't think I should write reviews anymore. Like the young, just let the young kids take over and do this shit. Like, I don't, I don't think I got space in the game anymore. And it's, it was one of, you know, that's how I have felt, you know, you do that when you kind of like are committed to something. Like I'll read a Yo Phillips op-ed and be like, damn, I think I'm done. Like I'm trash. I can't really do this shit. But I felt that way after reading the 17 year old kid's review of the 21 Savage album, especially because he's literally going up against the heavyweights as far as reviews go. Um, what were we doing at 17? Cause it wasn't that. Not, not, not for writing, me. Not, not, for not me. writing like this kid, <laughs> not writing like not this kid. So so shout out Daniel, man. He's uh, he's really killing it. Um, the so the thing that was the the most impressive part of the piece to me was the style and the structure. So for all of the other four to five reviews that I read of this album, they focused on one of two things: either the like the good or bad of the production and fusing of Twenty One Savage in comparison to the first Savage Mode. Or they focus centrally on the Morgan Freeman narration, which I need to shout out. Metro Boomin posted this, but it, all of it was um, written. The the script was written by Big Rube. So shouts Big Rube, the legend. Um, 
But Daniel um, centered his piece around pen and pixel, which is mentioned in some of the other pieces, but he does it very, very strategically. So he, he talks about how pen and pixel graphics was shut down in 2003. Um, and then he, he, uh, he gave their kind of their entirety of their full background. And it, at the end of the intro, he asked this question, which kind of became his thesis. Um, which is what did this album in particular have to do with Dirty South styling suggested by the cover? So what he was kind of describing is the difference between the sound of Savage Mode 2 and the music that is representative of Pen and Pixel. So when I think of Pen and Pixel, I don't know about y'all, I automatically think of the Juvenile 400 Degrees. Yup. Off rip. That's like the first one that comes to mind. I guarantee that that's the fact for most people. Although, like, there's a lot of legendary albums. Don't get it twisted. Um, and that is famously, like, I mean, a big legendary juvenile album, but also famously the album that had back that ass up. Right. So that the representation that like that imagery holds in my mind is what he describes as like Pen and Pixels music was like this kind of escapist party music, right? And then, like, 21 Savage is like a horror movie with Metro Boom and especially the first Savage Mode. And he was like, this is just an interesting combination. Like, it's so cool that they were able to bring them back. But it doesn't... This is, like, pre him even listening to the album. But it didn't make sense to him, actually, as a collaboration because he was like, well, it just feels entirely different right. from what he knew Pen and Pixel as. And I was like, wow, to set, he just combined the idea by doing this. And then he kind of explains it of doing sort of investigative journalism, but still keeping the piece inherently a review, which I think specifically, again, style wise is something that I haven't really seen done this astutely before because he does, again, he does still keep the structure um, of the review of the review. So... I, yeah, no, you go ahead. I was going to say I have like a million other things I can talk about, but I want to open it up to y'all as far as responding. To when that. I think about that type of, type of style, I think I think mostly of writers like uh, like Craig Jenkins, um, who is just masterful. At like, here's a narrative that's going on and here's a review. Uh, John, John Caramonico yeah. has also done pieces like this for the New York Times um, and in general. Craig. You know, these, this is good company. This is the, <laughs> this is good company for a seventeen yeah, yeah. year old kid to be in, um, <laughs> facts, and facts. it is you know it's really great writing too because it's it doesn't drag on a lot which is something that especially at seventeen I would have had immense trouble with I would have written about a thousand hundred words and uh, which is a <laughs> which is a number that's a number I made up um, I would have written like a million words I would have made this drag on too long because I would have been like well let's talk this this part into this section the succinctness of the piece. And the ma- the amount of different things that it tackles in this short period of time, uh, is just it's just great writing. You know, brevity is one of the yeah. most underrated things still about writing anything. You know, if you can knock yeah. something out in a minute that you that other people can do in five minutes, then you have a skill that very 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 few people have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that part's huge, right? Um, the the piece is great and the parallels it draws is wonderful, which I'll dive into in a second. But seventeen year old is out here talking about pen and pixel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, hold the phone. And not to like, <laughs> you know. He did his research. And utilizes pen and pixel to make one of the most beautiful, arguably metaphors to a comparison of genre types. And and I oh, think gosh. this is the kind of thing 
that happens when you have artists like 21 Savage calling on the past and what they're doing in the present and the future. Uh, I think a great amount of respect can be can be measured through this and understanding, you know, obviously through the writer's writing, but also the fact that uh, somebody like 21 Savage is making use of the pen and pixel, is making use of these different ideas and, and aesthetics and, and progressing this way as a writer allows for younger generations of people to build these connections in their mind and understand these different things and that's part of why these things are so important and why 21 Savage's progression has been so glorious just wonderful things to see from this guy who a lot of people have been had been talking bad about for years at the, at the beginning of his career as a fad as somebody who was just arguing oh what about 22 Savage is there 23 Savage coming <laughs> to and the whole thing this person was supposed to be a meme and now he's Arguably, I wouldn't necessarily argue it, but arguably, the for the foremost artist of his 2016 XXL freshman class. Right, totally. And I mean, what what Daniel really gets into is like how what at least what he's analyzing how thought through the collaboration and the the process yeah. is. So this was this was a bar that I picked out that I thought was really well written, just to kind of sum up the piece as a whole. If the first Savage Mode was a homemade slasher flick, then this album is its exploratory big-budget blockbuster sequel. It's even got deadpan narration from Morgan Freeman himself to show you just how much of an event it wants to be. So in that statement, he's saying a lot, right? Like he's saying, um, he's talking about the, the thought put into bringing Pen and Pixel is all about the event itself. Like it all ties in to, and that is kind of the centerpiece of the album more so than anything else is it's the full presentation of like, this is something different and elevated in a different way from us. And that also taps into 21 Savage's psychology. And even with, it makes me think of the I Am I Was album, Mm -hmm. which Daniel references too, which is like, he really did what is a version of like a crossover with that album, but also stayed inherently within what is the core of himself. Um, and so da- Daniel really throughout, I think, does a great job of kind of astutely analyzing um, how everything makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, did y'all, do y'all have any, anything else to add about, like, specific? Hmm. I'm still stuck on the fact that he's 17 and this is so well written. <laughs> right. I can't hang. I mean, 21 Savage, fine, great, but. Yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing bad. that there's just a. I think because of the way that the internet um, has become so commonly used, you know, there's, there's, wow, what a weird wording that was. Uh, I think because of the, <laughs> let's say the rise of social media and apps like Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, you know, young people are expressing themselves at earlier ages than ever to lar- like public people, like in public spaces. And I think there's, there's something to be said about how that influences the upcoming generation of writers you know, I think about somebody like um, like Al Pierre at Pitchfork, who's, who's who's pretty young as well. I don't know if he's actually I don't know if he's older than me or not, but um, you know, writers like these are very much influenced by this generation of social media, and therefore have this this literacy and this obviously in their generation, but in public discourse, in you know, you know the the ways in which humor manifests and in the ways in which these huge histories of artists are now accessible at their fingertips. And so I think Mm -hmm. we're going to see, you know, like an excellent generation of writers at younger ages being able to do stuff that, you know, when we were 17, 
we would not have thought possible for ourselves. Like we probably <laughs> thought we were writing like this, but you know, but we were, we were not like writing this. Like this. <laughs> yeah. Not no, but I think that's beautiful, right? That it gives us hope that younger generations are going to read and write in the same way that we hope music is talked about. Yeah. And it's good that hip hop is remaining something of a currency of the younger people. As soon as people start, you know, as soon as the, the average fan range of hip, not nothing wrong with people who are older. Um, but as soon as the average <laughs> fan, like age range starts getting older and older and getting into smaller and smaller age ranges, um, that's when a genre gets into some trouble in terms of cultural quote unquote relevancy and hip hop just Mm -hmm. seems to be getting younger and younger it's unbelievable the power that this cultural movement has and that this music has and that this overall culture has it's it's incredibly inspiring because people you know when i was a kid were just convinced that you know things were going to change and you know uh, hip-hop whatever but like i don't know man it's 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 incredible accessibility to hip-hop has changed right when when we were younger you either hung out with older kids had access to someone older and that was kind of how you had your first i guess taste of what hip-hop was whether that was because of profanity being played on radio or whatever the different access points were but now it's sort of like you just open your phone and which tiktok song do you want to play yeah totally and i mean he clear he clearly in this piece used the access that he had and you know he the the my favorite comparisons he used were some of the individual beats to and to manny fresh to tie in the pen and pixel thing and then even in the same thing when he went into the darker parts of savage mode too he was like well but even the tone of these darker parts actually tie into some of those three six mafia albums that had the pen and pixel yeah covers on them as well and i was like yeah so i mean shouts daniel for you know well done. using the inter- Using the internet as your OG, yeah, we will be we will be making notice of your work from here on. Yeah, you're on our you're on our radar, heavy. I I want to ask yeah. y'all, what is your favorite pen and pixel cover? Yeah, I mean, but I already said there's no way that I can not say 400 degrees because it's just like it's the one that comes in my head, so it can't not be my favorite. Elliot, I have to know. Let me give you this. Let me give this a thought. I think, <laughs> you know, it has to be the Big Bear doing things cover. Uh, if you guys are not familiar with this, it's the cover that, you know, this is, this is a rapper named Big Bear. I think he's from New Orleans. <laughs> it has two very big bears on it. I mean, I don't know how else to really hype that up. <laughs> there are bears on this cover. They are, one of them is wearing sure. sunglasses. I think they're wearing Versace robes. There's some, what, fruits on the table <laughs> that they're... B- this is one of the most bizarro world covers ever, and it is a perfect encapsulation of that stylization. <laughs> it is so good. And, you know, people... When, we, when we grew up, you know, this idea of, like, these kind of covers being cool was just, like, comical. Like, oh, is this, like, isn't this ironically great? But as we grow older, it's yeah. like, no... No, this is actually actually great in a non-ironic sense because this ability that they that that this artwork had to be so creative and off the cuff and so very much uh, playful with its influences, that's the stuff that we need more of. You know, when people take themselves so seriously that they don't even allow the creativity to move around a little bit, that's that's when you right. know art starts to die out. And I think that pen and pixel are 
so influential in today's day and age because you see the way that art styles like these might may influence vaporwave or might influence this newer generation of rappers that play with memes a little bit more i think this is incredible right. stuff 100%. I'll give a, I'll give a uh, since I already said Juvie. I mean, I mean, I'm really going to the ones. I don't have like the goofy one to think about, which I wish I did. Now I don't got the like in the cut deep cut pen and pixel bear reference, but definitely the other one I think about is Hot Boys Guerrilla mm. Warfare, which is like the Wayne, the Wayne and Juvenile. They got like the dark light on them. Actually, you know what's funny? I'm re looking at it right now, and low key that cover kind of has more of the energy of like Savage Mode, Savage mm. Mode Two to it. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of horror filmy. Yeah, it's horror filmy. It's got the f- different fonts, four different right. fonts. Right, <laughs> right. What about you? You didn't answer your own question. Yeah, so Joshua. I have two. One is this yeah. like Kenny Wayne. He's like rubbing his hands together, like super like wannabe sultry up to something. And it's probably <laughs> the more like less involved ones they've done. And then there's one called Northern Sound, The Takeover. And it has this radar video game-esque, almost, uh, you guys have to help me out here. I'm losing my words. What is, what is the feature on like either a gun or a video game when you are essentially locking into your target? Oh, you asked the wrong person. Like, do you know, do you know what I, like the, the red circles? Y'all, this is so dumb. Just look up Northern Sound, the takeover. Trust me. You'll see it. Uh, you'll see the target on the skyline, but I, I just thought that was dope. Oh, I can't even. I'm about to, I'm about to look it up. I'll chat it to you guys. Hold up, hold I know, up. I can't find it either. It's on their website. Uh, Everyone listening to this is gonna be like, uh, yeah. she's talking about the wrong thing. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> it is like a uh, yeah. Oh man. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, it's okay. Yeah, I think it's. I think a target is the thing that I think of. Why does it say? It is a target, right? I could. Why does it say political on it? Is that <laughs> one of the rappers' names? Maybe. Politico. Listen, whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, political commentary was so much a part of all of those things, actually. It's true. true. Right. I don't know if you guys remember in hip-hop, like, around 9-11 and afterwards, there were all of these references to what was happening in the government and who we brought into our country and what was happening with terrorism. And I remember that being such a, like, vivid experience in my mind that oh, shit, this must be really real if it's being referenced in hip-hop music. Mm. 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 And I still feel that way today. If it's in a hip-hop song, then I start to care about it. (laughs) All right, I don't know why it took so long to load, but I am also pretty sure that it's just a target, and I have no idea what else to call it. It's like a grid. It's a target. It's like a grid (laughs) of some sort, yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah, I'm I'm just out here overthinking because I can't be concise like Daniel. Wait, is it even supposed to be... this is gonna sound funny, but it really looks like that shit on the submarine where you're trying to see if there are other ships around you. And like a radar. Anything. Oh, like a radar. That's what I was saying. Maybe earlier. it's like a ra- like, oh, a radar, like a- radar. Yeah, Who knows, radar. y'all? It's- <laughs> Listen, it's been a long week. I could be talking about nothing, I, uh, or I could be talking about something. Right. All, all right. So let's <laughs> let's wrap it up after that super long talk. <laughs> <laughs> we had to make sure thing. we knew we were looking. Um, all right. Yeah, so again, um, I'm Mickey Hellerback. You guys want to say your names one more time? I'm Joshua Wadera. I'm Elliot Sang. And we are in search of sauce. Again, the three pieces that we brought today. Um, well, actually, do you want to say the actual name of the piece we talked about, Elliot? For the 
Rolling Stone joint, or I should just say, it's by Elias Light, the one that me and Josh, which is nobody is scrutinizing this, how labels pay to get songs on the radio, but there's also, this is of a string of pieces for Rolling yeah. Stone. Then Joshua Mo brought How Pop Smoke Shaped New York Drills Rap Scene Well Into the Afterlife by Kathy Iandoli. And then to close it out, we just talked about on Savage Mode 2, 21 Savage and Metro Boomin, Look Into the Past for Inspiration. And that was on Sound Columns, which is also like a, a more low-key publication. So shout out to Sound Columns. Indeed. Um, and, and Daniel, 17, killing it. Um, yeah, tune in, like, subscribe. Leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of Essential Source featured Mickey Hellerback, Jeshima Waterer, and Elliot Sang of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, Fifth M Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. Let's see your breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source Fifth End Podcast Network production. Links for Basti, Chill Breakers, Central Source Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.